Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. She's looking for a job, and she's dressed for it, too. Tastefully, not expensively. You know, clothing is actually the first visual impression other people have of us. Some say it's a key to how do we appear to others. It uh, communicates. They not only look nice to us, they're a good investment. Hi, Amanda. This is Julia. Hey, Julia. How are you? Good. It's nice to meet you. Not to be a complete creep right now, and we've never actually met in person because of the pandemic, but my first question for you is, uh, what are you wearing? I am wearing... um, Sort of a shapeless dress slash top. Amanda Mole is a staff writer at The Atlantic. She tries to explain who we are as Americans through material things, like beauty products, kitchen appliances, and the clothes we wear. Or don't wear. It's like, there's no way to say this without sounding creepy. <laughs> are you wearing pants? <laughs> I, am not, I am not wearing pants. And lately, she's been spending a lot of time thinking about pants. Or not pants per se, but what pants have to say about us. I think that fashion is a social language. When I was in high school in 2003, it was the first time that I had had a super steady paycheck. What I wanted to do was buy a coach bag. I wanted to be the type of person who carried a handbag that cost a couple hundred dollars. That just seemed like the most sophisticated adult thing that I could do based on my conception of what sophisticated adults did in suburban Atlanta. It's so funny. The coach bag was so the thing in suburban Miami, Florida as well. <laughs> um, it was like the, the pinnacle. Yeah. At some point, it was sort of like, oh, I have psychoanalyzed myself. I understand that my desire for these things. It was definitely like a striving impulse. It's the kind of thing you know even if you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about stuff like this. Clothes speak. They can at least try to tell people things, like, I'm rich, or I'm at a funeral. We've set up almost like these laws in American life about who gets to wear white at certain events, or what it means to wear pink. But in this time when many of us are barely seeing each other, Amanda's been thinking about how the rules change. Which brings us back to pants. I think the... uh the clothing item of the pandemic is sweatpants. Again with the sweatpants. <laughs> I'm comfortable. You know the message you're sending out to the world with these sweatpants? You're telling the world, I give up. I can't. I think the sweatpants have, over time, been painted as a sort of uh, aesthetic indicator of laziness. Sweatpants, no, no, no. no. Never? No, no. Wow. You can't do sweatpants. I'm Ladies, number one cause of divorce in America, sweatpants. 
And that made me more and more interested in how differently they could be painted. Like, are, are sweatpants laziness or are they freedom? Sweatpants. Not the most pressing issue facing our country. I know. But when you walk through the long and winding history of this pair of pants, the complicated relationship it's had with mainstream culture, a story emerges about who we are and what we value. This week, Amanda Mole unwinds that relationship we didn't know we had with sweatpants and makes the case for how embracing them might just set you free. I'm Julia Longoria. This is The Experiment, a show about our unfinished country. To embrace sweatpants as freedom, you have to understand why people oppose them so vociferously in the first place. Sweatpants came from the same place that a lot of the modern American wardrobe came from, which is athletics. They were invented in the 1920s in France by a French uh, sportswear brand for French athletes. I think mostly tennis players at first. The material that they're often made of is French terry. What is French terry? Um, it's the it's sweatshirt material is what you think of. Uh, the inside of sweatpants feels sort of like a towel because that was really what they were for to absorb sweat. And they were once considered intolerably casual and disrespectful to wear in polite company. Sweatpants began their life humbly, as a sponge for French sweat. Definitely unsophisticated, also, honestly, a little gross. But they didn't stay that way. Half a century later, when they made their way to American shores, they slowly tiptoed their way into the mainstream. So they started to enter the wardrobe in the 1980s, uh, when culturally the United States was having a boom in fitness. Okay, give me that wonderful music. Here we go. You get the rise of exercise celebrities, uh, Richard Simmons. Are you ready to do the workout? Jane Fonda. Some of those people emerged in the 70s to begin with, but the 80s is where things really ramped up. Winter warmth. It was suddenly very, very popular to be a person who exercised and who wore clothing that indicated that you exercised. Jogging suits for winter workouts were designed to fit your routine. Which means that you had people who wanted to buy sweatpants. They were a status indicator. International player, making him know I care. And then you also get the rise of hip-hop culture. Ladies and gentlemen, homeboys, homegirls, the New York City Breaker. Breakdancing, things like that were very popular. And, and those, those are athletic activities. Breakdancing is a little bit like jazz, where uh, you improvise around some basic moves. They require a range of motion. Bring your right leg under and your right arm over. It's much harder to do that in jeans than it is to do it in a pair of sweatpants. Kick your left leg and return. Kick your right leg. And they also were cool. Because Run DMC liked them. Okay, this is the iconic Run DMC Adidas commercial. You see them coming in over New York City in the branded Run DMC Adidas helicopter. They're stepping out. They're wearing 
sweatpants treated with some sort of like reflective treatment. Very sort of athletic inspired, but clearly not meant to be doing anything particularly athletic in that moment besides being a rap star. What qualifies as a sweatpant can be uh, a sort of capacious, uh, capacious <laughs> thing. Sweat, sweatpants <laughs> contain multitudes. So you've got these two sort of disparate groups, one mostly black and younger, one mostly white and older, both started to circle around this same type of garment at the same time. And those two things came together to make sweatpants a really cool, fun thing to wear. Sweatpants hadn't just entered the mainstream. They'd beamed their way up to the very pinnacle of cool in American society. But Americans are notoriously fickle, and sweatpants couldn't hang on for long. So just as sweatpants were sort of getting their moment, all of these better options that would literally just show people your body, which is what leggings do, which is what spandex does, all of these better options came online. So sweatpants then sort of shifted in the popular mindset because they were baggy, because they didn't show your shape at all. So they they went from being a sign of athleticism to a sign that you just wanted to wear a pair of shapeless, stretchy pants. That's how sweatpants sort of got laundered into this narrative of laziness, of giving up. Hmm. You get this cycle happening again and again and again of something that seemed uncontroversial in some way for a long time will suddenly become lame. <laughs> <laughs> will suddenly become something your mom does or or something that doesn't feel culturally relevant to you at all. And they stayed like that for about 15 years. Throughout the 90s, sweatpants went back to being just sweatpants, something comfortable to wear, basic, utilitarian. They were waiting for something or someone to pick them back up again. Like we've seen over and over in fashion history, someone with power and take a basic garment and make it go viral. The past several hundred years of fashion have seen this happen over and over again. Uh, an example of this from fashion history is Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette's court was known for being extraordinarily formal. People wore enormous, ornate gowns finished with the finest fabrics, with jewels. They had the coach bags of their day, I guess. Yes, they had the coach bags of their day. But there's this one famous portrait of Marie Antoinette wearing what was called at the time a robe de Gaulle. This gauzy white dress tied at the waist with a ribbon and there's no corset. It just looks sort of diaphanous. Diaphanous? What a wonderful <laughs> word. <laughs> what does diaphanous mean? It is one of those words you learn writing about fashion. Yeah. <laughs> it means sort of like something that is light and skims the body, relatively comfortable to wear. It was, by the time standards, and especially for someone of Marie Antoinette's social class, basically underwear. And this was, you know, really controversial at the time, but... The young women of France suddenly wanted to dress like Marie Antoinette in this sort of unencumbered, delicately feminine way. So that is like a real turning point, I think, in history that you can see repeated again and again as people decide that they want to wear something that's a little bit more comfortable than what they've been asked to wear. Wearing corsets and finery and dresses that weigh God knows how many pounds every single day has to be a little bit 
much. <laughs> it would be annoying to me. I don't even like to wear um, real pants. After the break, sweatpants get their Marie Antoinette. And then you get to the 2000s, where so much about culture went weird. <laughs> Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com slash listener and get started. Let's talk about the Juicy Couture tracksuit. Paris Hilton and Britney Spears are, to a certain extent, the Marie Antoinettes of sweatpants. I wanted to be comfortable and cute. In 2003, paparazzi culture meant that this group of women was sort of inescapable. Halloween. I don't know. All of a sudden, you had roving bands of photographers out looking to photograph stars doing their errands, going to the grocery store. I really could not leave my house without being mobbed. I just want my Starbucks, y'all. He's taking forever. Before that period, there were always gossip rags. But with paparazzi, you could see stars just w- sort of wandering Los Angeles. And a lot of them were wandering Los Angeles in none other than Juicy Couture tracksuits. I have an entire closet that's only Juicy Couture. It's somewhere I go in every single day and just put on my juice. <laughs> Which is a, a company that I think most people are probably well familiar with now that started in California with two sort of young-ish women. So they uh, designed this sweatsuit that was extremely tight. It really hugged the body. The pants portion was very low rise. So, you know, if you were a true mid-2000s babe, you could let your thong strap peek out of it a little bit, which upset a lot of people's parents. (laughs) (laughs) It was really like someone went into a... uh, clothing factory and went, what if sweatpants but sexy? <laughs> They're just comfortable and feminine. Makes people happy. My first juicy item was a black sweatsuit. Oh, I love juicy. I like, wear their clothes all the time. Everybody loves juicy. <laughs> and those tracksuits sold like hotcakes. They were the biggest thing going for years. I remember like seeing those and being, just being like, how are people paying this much money to, to have juicy and like little diamonds across their butts? Like, how did we get here? Right, right. Yeah. And, and back in like 2003, 2004, paying $200 for a sweatsuit meant even more in that era than it, than it would right now. And it's still quite a lot of money to pay for a sweatsuit right now. And so what happened? I mean, I, you know, I seem to remember that Paris Hilton and Britney Spears kind of faded from the the popular consciousness, and so did sweatpants, right? Yeah, it was sort of similar to what happened in the 1980s with sweatpants. Some better options come along. So 
people moved on first to yoga pants. And then after yoga pants comes all of the athleisure that we have now, like very high-tech compression leggings. Sweatpants, I think, sort of went back to their status as being for people who had given up. Sweatpants went back to being sweatpants, which are elastic-waisted and baggy and, and sort of shapeless and a pleasure to wear while you're sitting on the couch, but an aesthetic marker of, of things that people didn't want to be accused of. To the mainstream, sweatpants became sort of embarrassing. Something private that you wear to be comfortable at home, on the couch, but not in public and definitely not at work. But last year, all of that changed. A lot of people who had been going to offices stopped going to offices for the foreseeable future, stopped going to restaurants, stopped going on dates. If you can stay home, which is lucky in and of itself, you sort of have to deal with the physical realities of staying home, which means a lot of sitting for extended periods of time. You might have to run after kids. You might have to get up and start cooking. So having something that is comfortable and versatile and not precious to wear right now is, I think, ideal for a lot of people. And everybody's happy and wearing sweatpants. Well, not everybody's happy. Everybody's miserable. But But at least they're happy to be wearing sweatpants. In the pandemic, sweatpants are back in the mainstream. But this time, it's not because an influencer made them cool again, not because people want to signify some sort of cultural cachet. They're back because people working from home aren't trying to signify anything at all. I think the sweatpants are sort of, in some senses, a void, where people built up identities to demonstrate to the outside world, built wardrobes to make themselves match their jobs or their social lives or the self that they want to project at their kids' school meetings, things like that. When you're at home, you're not projecting anything to the outside world. And when you don't have the opportunity to do that anymore, what do you wear? What do you value? What becomes important to clothing then? And for a lot of people, I think it's just comfort. It's not having to think about what you're wearing because there are so many other stressful things to think about. I, I don't know. I, I guess, like, I, I, like, appreciate that you're leaning into the sweatpants. But I got to say, like, I'm, for some reason, early on in the pandemic, it's kind of gotten less so lately, but I would wake up and, like, put on pants and put on makeup and put on, like, do the whole thing, like, put on my face, even though we were just in our apartments. And I guess there's something about the ritual of that, of, like, putting on hard pants, jeans, or whatever, that, like, I really hold on to. Maybe you don't want to be your full self at work, right? Like, your your full self is private. Um, and, And that act of, like, putting something on kind of separates work from life. Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, that's a a very real thing. Um, So I can understand wanting to get that back in some capacity. For me, it's doing my hair, even if nobody sees me, except my little dog. Um, (laughs) It is a way that that I hold on to the person that I am outside of my apartment. So I think that that will be a little bit different for everybody. In the pandemic, sweatpants have achieved something rare in fashion. 
they've become close to universal. But there are still haters out there. There are still people who think that, like a towel for French sweat, sweatpants are a little gross. I think that people who still hate sweatpants after all of this time hate it because they hate other people's freedom and they hate the comfort that other people have embraced that they themselves have not allowed themselves to have yet. Yeah, what do you mean? Because sweatpants are for when you need to be comfortable. They might be for when your jeans don't fit like they used to, or they might be for when you just don't want to shove yourself into a pair of, of super structured pants, or they might be when you want to relax. And I think that America as a country and as a culture often has a problem with like comfort for comfort's sake. You know, we have a a hardcore, strict Puritan background that still rears its head occasionally in, in the way people make assumptions about others and their intentions and what we should all value. I, I think that being really upset when you see somebody else being comfortable comes from a belief that discomfort is necessary and that you deserve some sort of cultural credit for putting yourself through it. And that people who decide not to put themselves through it are somehow in some way inferior to you because of that choice. People who reject that and reject the value of all the energy they've spent on it for their whole lives can be really upsetting. And I think that it doesn't make sense to object to sweatpants because aren't there times that everybody wants to relax, to just enjoy their body as their body wants to be. I think that's fine. I don't think that there's a good reason to shit on that. I don't think people need to wear sweatpants if they don't feel like wearing sweatpants. But I think that if that is what their heart tells them, then they should go for it. This episode was produced by Julia Longoria, Gabrielle Burbe, and me, Alvin Mella. Editing by Captain Wells, fact-check by Stephanie Hayes, sound design by David Herman. Music for this episode by Tacia Morsels and Nelson Nance. Our team also includes Emily Botine, Matt Collette, Tracy Hunt, and Natalia Ramirez. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to listen to our show, and be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this episode. The Experiment is a co-production of The Atlantic and WNYC Studios. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Hi, everyone. This is Julia Longoria, host of The Experiment. One of the very best parts of my job is getting to call up journalists like Ed Young, Van Newkirk, and Amanda Mole. Their reporting for The Atlantic has brought vital insight to millions of readers and listeners around the world. You can enjoy all of The Atlantic's groundbreaking journalism, gain unlimited access to every single story when you become a subscriber. Just go to theatlantic.com listener and get started.